What explains the rise of majority-minority tensions and conflict in Xinjiang? By Riza Hazmath. Introduction. Inter-ethnic violence has been on the rise in mainland China. On September 18, 2015, a knife-wielding attack in Aksu, Xinjiang, Uyghur Autonomous Region, in brackets, XUAR, claimed the lives of nearly 50 individuals and injured 50. On March 1, 2014, another knife attack in Kunming's railway station claimed the lives of 29 individuals and injured 130. Chinese state media alleged the Uyghur militants were the assailants in both cases. In November 2013, a car explosion in Beijing's Tianmen Square by five Uyghurs killed two and injured 40. This followed two separate outbursts of reported violence in Xinjiang between Uyghurs and the Han, the national majority, but one of the many regional minorities in XUAR. On June 26 and 28, 2013, where 35 people were killed in total. This was a timely event given it occurred near the fourth anniversary of the July 2009 Urumqi riots, which resulted in 197 deaths and 1,721 injuries. Suffice to say, Repeated acts of ethnic minority-rooted violence in the past few years have claimed hundreds of lives and injured thousands across China. Received wisdom suggests that tensions have increased due to ethno-cultural repression and state policies that limit religious practices, phase out of minority language instruction in schools, and promote the negative commodification and representation of ethnic minorities. The Communist Party of China in brackets, CPC, continues to be a staunchly atheist organization. All party members and employees on the state payroll are forbidden to wear religious attire, such as Islamic headscarves and coverings, including the dopa cap for males, or engage in religious practices, such as fasting during Ramadan. While Article 36 of China's Constitution guarantees religious freedom, in practice, individuals under the age of 18 are prohibited from entering religious places of worship, worship such as churches, temples, and mosques, and praying in schools. The study of religious texts is permitted only in designated state schools. There are documented accounts of government informers regularly attending gatherings, sermons, or prayers in local churches, temples, and mosques. Furthermore, Chinese authorities have slowly phased out the use of ethnic minority languages as the primary medium of instruction in the majority of schools, replacing them with Mandarin Chinese as the dominant working language. The reaction by some members of the Uyghur community in Xinjiang is one of resistance, even to the extent of sparking potential violence. For example, in May 2014, a mass protest in front of government buildings in a township in Aksu turned violent when participants beat the principal of a school and a township official and pelted stones at the building. In retort, state authorities generally respond that the shift to a near-universal use of Mandarin Chinese in schools ensures ethnic minorities can compete on an equal footing with the Han in the labor market and related, relatedly to maximize their educational potential. 
Whether this is strategy has been successful in another narrative with mixed results looking at returns to education reported in the literature. Suffice to say, these practices in some can potentially lead to a process of depriving ethnic minority youths grounding in traditional ethnocultural values, a lack of meaningful exposure to ethnocultural group practices at a young age will likely encourage ethnic minorities to adopt the secular ideology of the Chinese state, rather than to practice ethnocultural group practices in adulthood. The pressure to adopt Han culture over a hybrid ethnic minority Han culture, or an ethnic minority culture on its own, is further exasperated by the commodification of ethnic minorities. Studies focusing on China's ethnic minorities and their interactions with the majority Han ethnic group have suggested that the modern Chinese state has a tendency to depict ethnic minorities as exotic practitioners of backward traditions and prone to poverty and illiteracy. This is contrasted to the Han majority, who are seen as united, modern, and superior. For the young ethnic minority person, acting Han is generally seen as the passport for social acceptance and higher status. Given it is perceived as a marker of sophistication and being modern by Han, although interestingly, Smith Finley suggests it could be viewed as shameful and traitorous by many within the Uyghur community. The overall effects of state policies and practices on ethnic minorities, coupled with the growing numerical pressure of Han Chinese in once ethnic minority dominated areas, has led to older ethnic minorities worrying that their offspring will be drawn away from their tra traditional ethnocultural practices by the attraction of Han materialism. As one Uyghur woman commented in the aftermath of the July 2009 riots, the Han don't respect our lifestyle, we want our dignity. While the scholarly evidence thus far correctly identifies ethnocultural repression and ineffective state policies as the main culprits behind the rise of ethnic minority tensions among Uyghurs in Xinjiang, the socioeconomic dimension has not been thoroughly investigated as a direct contributory role for the rise of ethnic tensions, as hinted in wider literature on larger ethnic conf conflicts in a non-Chinese con context. This article will focus on this aspect via an in-depth exploration of Uyghur's socioeconomic integration at the level of the labor market in an evolving market economy and through the prism of their on-the-ground negotiation with rapid internal hand migration in Xinjiang cities. Two theories are particularly useful as a starting point to tie together ethnic minorities' socioeconomic profile with a growing and heightened ethnocultural consciousness and ethnic tensions. Split labor market theory highlights how competition for jobs leads to friction between and hence the political crystallization of particular groups. Conversely, labor segmentation theory illustrates capital's exploitation of group divisions for economic gain. It is a worthwhile endeavor to test whether current labor market processes involving agency, for example, social capital labor movement, and structure, for example, market or institutions, are shaping a split and or segmented labor market in Xinjiang, which can potentially contribute to 
increasing and heightened ethnocultural consciousness. This scenario is complicated by the fact that Xinjiang's labor market has undergone a substantial transformation due to massive internal Han migration. Increasing numbers of Han migrants are heading into Xinjiang cities, pushed by demographic pressures and pulled by economic structural transformation. In short, the article assesses whether ethnic tensions and violence is a manifestation and expression of an acute rising ethnocultural consciousness stemming from ethnic minorities' low socioeconomic status in XUAR. Section 2 State Ethnic Management and Rising Ethnocultural Consciousness The XUAR case is an apt environment to understand ethnic minority Han interactions playing out in the everyday, the effects of state policies on ethnic minorities, and to delve deeper into the reasons behind the rise of ethnic minority tensions. Among the estimated 113.79 million ethnic minorities constituting approximately 8.5% of the total population in the 2010 census, the majority have traditionally been concentrated in the resource-rich western areas of the nation. Central among these areas is XUAR in China's northwest, occupying one-sixth of total land mass and holding one of the nation's largest and strategically important natural gas and oil reserves, where slightly over 10 million Uyghurs, a Turkic, mostly Sunni Muslim ethnic group, reside as the majority. As hinted earlier, exchanges between Uyghurs and the Han in the region have been tense as a result of historical and contemporary conflict between both parties. The state's response to repeated expressions of Uyghurs' dissatisfaction in Xinjiang has consisted of oscillating soft and hard policy approaches. The soft policy approach is exemplified by funding the building and upkeep of mosques. According to the State Information Office, there are over 20,000 mosques in Xinjiang, which makes this endeavor relatively significant. Further, the state has provided preferential policies in education for ethnic minorities, which consist of bursaries, scholarships, and university admissions based on lower examination scores. The hard policy approach is illustrated by the state's attempt to re-educate and reform religious leaders to ensure they do not advocate Islamic extremism or illegal religious activities, as defined by the state or to prevent leaders from forging connections between the approximately 21 million Muslims in China, figure derived from China's State Administration for Religious Affairs Office. For the latter point, forging ethno-religious ethno connections has been a starting point in other jurisdictions to foster a collective consciousness that creates division and ultimately leading to potential political mobilization. The Chinese state is keen to eliminate this possibility in Xinjiang. The hard policy approach is fundamentally a security apparatus. There are strong efforts to clamp down on illegal mosque constructions when the state perceives them to be a threat to security. In the present day, XUAR 
there has been an increasingly visible security presence, exemplified by the rolling out of a grid-based social management system. Essentially, communities in XUAR have been divided into zones, and then a group of party members are assigned to each zone, where they are tasked to monitor and conduct surveillance of various activities that are threatening, or potentially threatening, to social stability. In early 2014, the government announced that approximately 200,000 cadres will live within local communities in Xinjiang, making this a potentially large and significant undertaking. In practice, there is no conformity in terms of how surveillance is conducted. It varies depending on the area. At the very least, party members have relatively sophisticated technologies at their disposal if they elect to use them, and these seem to be employed more readily in the urban areas. This may involve using riot-proof HD cameras, policing boxes, and introducing 24-hour inspection routes. Furthermore, Uyghurs in both the XUAR and across the nation are randomly targeted for surveillance and scrutiny by state authorities who justify their actions by citing the need for increased security measures given the rise of visible conflict in the region as illustrated earlier. Coiled in this interaction between Uyghurs and the Han, there is a rising ethnocultural consciousness which often revolves around highlighting differences to the Han. As Gladney astutely noted two decades ago, but is equally applicable today, Uyghurs subscribe to certain identities under highly contextualized moments of social relations. For example, the close link between Muslim and Uyghur identity has meant that any shifts by state authorities in regulating ethnocultural practices via varying soft or hard practice policies has been a source of contention for Uyghurs. Smith-Finley goes a step further than Gladney, specifically outlining six ways of ethnocultural consciousness manifest on the ground. 1. Daily repetition of negative stereotypes of Han Chinese. 2. Symbolic spatial and social segregation from Han Chinese. 3. Dissemination of alternative representation of Han Uyghur as colonizer and the colonized through the medium of popular Uyghur songs. 4. The growth of Orthodox Islam. 5. A strengthened taboo on Uyghur Han intermarriage. And 6. A selective cosmopolitanism through which Uyghurs embraced Central Asian cultures. By utilizing these strategies, Uyghurs are creating a discourse that rejects national unity and re-emphasizes ethnocultural and social differences from the Han. From the state's perspective, a rising ethnocultural consciousness among Uyghurs, if not adequately dealt with, can exasperate dissent and social unrest. This is the underlying thinking behind the state adopting the soft and hard policy approaches with a growing emphasis on the latter. Of course, as Smith-Finley rightly points out, those same differences did not prevent Uyghurs from interacting with the Han in the past when it was suitable. Section 3. Migration and Settlement Patterns Upon the establishment of XUAR in October 1955, the CPC instituted a program of resettling the Han in the region. 
The consequence is that Xinjiang's Han population steadily increased from 3.6 million at the establishment of XUAR to 21.8 million in 2010. Put differently, XUAR's population grew at an average annual rate of 2.9%, where the corresponding figure nationally was 1.5%. In aggregate terms, between 1953 and 2010, the Han popul Chinese population increased their share of the region's total population from 6.1% to 40.1%. The sudden escalation of Han residents during this period has two primary effects. First, there was unsustainable expansion of industry and accompanying urbanization. Second, Xinjiang did not experience severe food shortages during this time and therefore received an influx of internal migrants from other parts of China in search of food. Of course, the most basic manner to characterize Han migration to Xinjiang in the contemporary era is that it is generally an outcome of an orchestrated and systematic state effort to increase the population of Han Chinese in the region. The Chinese have historically controlled Xinjiang through the construction of garrisons and urban settlements by encouraging Han migration. In this tradition, the CPC have continued to use such methods of control in tandem with agricultural settlements taking the form of the still-active Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps, or in brackets, XPCC, and Bingtan, established in 1954, originally created to employ demobilized troops. The XPCC is one of Xinjiang's three main administrative organs and operates as an autonomous society with its own public security and judicial organs. In 1996, it was elevated to the same political status as the Xinjiang government. One of the practical consequences of consolidating power through this administrative setup is that it places Uyghurs in a, in a structural competition with the Han and other minority groups. Consolidating political power in the hands of predominantly Han upper-level officials. For example, in 2009, the XPCC recruited approximately 894 civil servant positions, of which 744 have been reserved for Han Chinese. 137 were unrestricted by ethnicity, 11 were earmarked for Uyghurs, and 2 were reserved for Kazakhs. At present, an estimated 13% of Xinjiang's population is directly connected to the Bingtan consisting of an ethnic demographic breakdown of 88% Han Chinese, 2.2 million population, in comparison to less than 7% Uyghurs, 165,000 population. Xinjiang's Han Chinese also have a tendency to settle in wealthier urban areas of northern Xinjiang, while Uyghurs tend to constitute the majority in rural areas or the poorer urban areas of southern Xinjiang. Officially, 80.8% of Uyghurs reside in rural areas in comparison to 46.4% for Han Chinese. 9 and 10.1% of Uyghurs live in the town and city, with a corresponding figure of 13 and 40.6% for the Han population. The strong Han presence in cities can be interpreted as a form of internal Han colonization through encirclement, 
or population swamping in the region. Fueling this interpretation are statistics that indicate that between 1991 and 2011, Han presence in Xinjiang's urban areas increased at a positive rate of about 1.78%, with the corresponding rate of Uyghurs at negative 0.07%. Han Chinese markedly increased their proportion in major cities from 1991 to 2011 and by over 5% in Bortala, Hami, and Korla. Korla, whose economy largely relies on the oil and gas industries, is one of the three main centers of production in Xinjiang, the other two being Urmgui and Karame. Moreover, between 1991 and 2010, Uyghurs' share of the urban population declined significantly in most major cities, and notably those locations in the south and whose economies are highly dependent upon agriculture. From another standpoint, the birth rate among the Uyghurs is almost four times as much as Han. Therefore, it is reasonable to assume that the increase in the Han urban population principally results from increased Han internal migration. The Han bias in urbanization is a key demographic and development issue within Xinjiang. As Hazmath and Su argue in the case of the Tibet Autonomous Region, the urgent development issue for minorities is not population dominance, but access to the privileges of urban development, for example, higher income. In the context of Xinjiang, regional and ethnic inequality is worsening. Xinjiang's GDP per capita ranking was 12th among China's 31 provinces and regions in 2000, and in 2012 it was ranked 18th. The Han population is disproportionately concentrated in locations where average income is highest. There is a clear and significant correlation between GDP per capita and the proportion of Han residents. In fact, every percentage point increased in the non-Han share of the population is associated with an expected decrease in GDP per capita of 44 RMB, 6.6 USD. Section 4. The Division of Labor The division of labor in Xinjiang is greatly shaped by migration and urbanization patterns. In particular, the oasis settlements are where the majority of Uyghurs reside. Land is scarce and the plots cultivated are insufficient to satisfy subsistence and work to the available labor force. As elsewhere in China, Following the advent of the rural responsibility system, the agriculture sector was unable to absorb surplus labor. The structural forces underlying urbanization can be vividly illustrated by comparing GDP to labor share ratios. These indicate the relative productivity of labor within different industries in terms of its value-added contribution to the GDP. When examining the labor shares, percentage of employed persons, and GDP to labor share ratios in the primary, secondary, and tertiary industries in 2000 and 2011, what is observed is that the GDP labor share ratio is highest in the secondary industry, which generally has higher capital inputs. And this is increasingly the case from 2000 to 2011. Thus, the relative GDP contribution of one worker in this industry is higher than in the primary and the tertiary industry. 
The value-added contribution includes wages and profits. In short, the high secondary and tertiary ratios reflect the relatively high salary levels in these industries. Approximately 14,000 RMB and 2,100 US dollars per annum. These are more than double the primary industry, approximately 6,500 RMB and 975 USD per annum, which has particularly low remuneration. In XUAR, the secondary industries are more productive than in China as a whole, a gauge of the relative structural dominance of these industries in Xinjiang's economic development. The critical issue here is that while Uyghurs have a strong connection in primary industries, the Han dominate the secondary and tertiary industries. Put another way, key strategic resources of the region, such as electricity, gas, and water, are managed by Han Chinese. Odds ratios 0.06. The type and quality of jobs Uyghurs get is crucial in understanding this stratification. The Han have moved into the private sector where minorities are not faring well, as the formal state and the collective sector diminishes in economic importance. Total employment and work units have slumped drastically against a backdrop where the total number of Xinjiang inhabitants of working age has grown. In 2000, 2,762,260 were formal employees and inhabitants of working age has grown. In 2000, 2,762,260 were formal employees and 4,175,900 were urban individuals or rural laborers. Minority share of employment in local state-owned enterprises, 40.7% in 1991, 43.2% in 1996, greatly outweighs their share of employment in central state-owned enterprises divisions, 9.4% in 1991, 10.5% in 1996. At the most rudimentary level, one will expect more ethnic parity at the central SOE level than the ratios reported. Official statistics in later years do not differentiate minority shares. Speculatively, this may be due to the fact that it highlights potential long-standing inequalities. Such figures, ignored in debates on internal hand colonialism in Xinjiang, are a potential sign of unequal distribution of political power. The most recent Han Chinese interprovincial migrants are spontaneous and not part of state-directed population transfers. Their presence within urban areas and within high-status, high-paying occupations, defined in this instance as above the average annual wage of 10,278 RMB, 1,542 USD, contributes to the perception of urban Xinjiang being an internal Han colony. As Table 4 illustrates, the Han are overrepresented in high-status and high-paying occupations. There are over 35% of the Han working population resides, in comparison to 13% for Uyghurs. On the other hand, Uyghurs are overrepresented in agriculture, 
where over 80% of the group's working population is present. Odds ratio is 4.66. The transformation from a state plan to market-based economy during the 1980s and early 1990s slowly created an ownership structure in Xinjiang that shifted towards the private sector. While the private sector is relatively weak in Xinjiang compared to other western provinces, its importance has grown rapidly, accounting for about 20% of the region's total GDP in 2003. Between 1995 and 2002, the urban state sector in Xinjiang shed 884,000 jobs and in share in overall urban employment dropped from 80.6% to 59%. In contrast, Xinjiang's total number of Getu, private businesses with less than eight employees, and saying Kui, more than eight employees, has burgeoned. By December 2003, Xinjiang had 36,617 Xinkui, employing 491,657 persons. This amounted to a rise of 31.1% in the number of private enterprises and 27% in the number of employees over the previous year. The number of Jianhu also increased over the same 12 months to 449,911, 4.2% increase, employing some 706,556 persons, 7.7% increase. Uyghurs are faring relatively poorly in the private sector and are far less likely to be self-employed than the Han. The private sector attracts many Han internal migrants, as does the XPCC. For this reason, one may be inclined to recommend the re that reducing the size of the XPCC will also reduce pressure on local employment by cutting down on the large population of itinerant Han migrant workers. While this recommendation could potentially be fruitful, deeper processes linked to the marketization of the economy and social networks that manufacture social exclusion must be fully factored in with respect to any recommendations for change, as the following section suggests. Section 5. Marketization and the Rise of Ethnocultural Consciousness Given the current migration, urbanization, and economic patterns, one may conclude that there is a growing Han internal colony in Xinjiang's political economy. To attribute this reality entirely to state policy may not be entirely accurate. State policy does not overtly perpetuate an ethnic division of labor, notwithstanding the XPCC civil servant hiring practices. Indeed, there are numerous state preferential policies in school admissions that, in theory, can potentially increase the chances of Uyghurs to obtain higher status and higher paying occupations. Moreover, when both Uyghurs and the Han are abundant in low status and low paying occupations, 91 and 75 percent respectively, the lack of an ethnic division of labor diminishes ethnic solidarity. Arguably, what is increasing ethnic solidarity and consciousness among Uyghurs in particular is the effects of the marketization of an emerging capitalist economy in XUAR. 
As Hav's maths research illustrates, in spite of having higher educational attainment, minority nationalities generally have lower employment rates and wages than their Han counterparts. In general, the Han tend to use their social networks to find higher status and higher paying occupational opportunities in greater instances than minorities. Two-thirds of all positions found by the Han were found in this fashion, whereas the corresponding figure for minority nationalities accounted for one-twelfth of all positions found. Similar processes are at work in Xinjiang. Under a socialist mode of production, the state was compelled to integrate Uyghurs and was able to accomplish this task by providing iron rice bowl jobs in state-owned and collective-owned enterprises. Essentially, in Xinjiang, as well as the rest of China, there was an institutional system of organized dependence, whereby the individual was tied to their work unit for life in exchange for secure employment irrespective of ethnicity. However, by the late 1980s and early 1990s, after nearly a decade of market reforms, the job assignment system was abandoned. Individuals were now urged to create jobs for themselves and seek employment in emerging private sector. In fact, as noted earlier, most new hires in Xinjiang now occur in the private sector, rendering government preferential policies weak to control occupational stratification. A 2001 high-level investigation report of the Xinjiang CPC committee candidly disclosed that the strategy of choosing from both sides, Han and Uyghurs, in hiring has been more challenged following the establishment and perfecting of the market economic system. The power of intervention by the go- of the government has continuously decreased, and the difficulty of finding a job for minority laborers has become bigger and implementing equal opportunity measures has become less practical. In effect, such social networks are embedded in labor market behavior to the degree that it ultimately produces sectoral ethnic group divisions. In fact, the evidence suggests there is a tendency for Uyghurs to hold low status and low-paying positions, particularly in the service sector, while the Han occupy positions in high-wage labor capital-intensive industries. The ethnic group divisions in the labor market may run deeper. For instance, many Uyghurs conduct business only with fellow Uyghurs and vice versa, Han with fellow Han. Such behavior significantly reduces both sides' income and unequally affects Uyghurs given the tendency for the group to be in a lower status and lower paying occupations. In this way, disproportionate access to the local economy as a result of market forces, migration patterns, and social networks creates and reinforces spatial divisions, since wages can also determine residential location. Uyghurs in the Han reside in relatively closed ethnic communities and seldom meaningfully interact with each other. Their living conditions are also poorer than those of Han as a result of earning lower incomes. This does not bode well for economic, social, and political integration of Uyghurs in the short and long term, and will only intensify perceived or real differences between the Han and Uyghurs, thus reinforcing ethno-cultural tensions. Section 6. Discussion and Conclusion 
Split labor market and labor segmentation theories assumptions are seemingly apt in the XUAR case. The evidence suggests that there is an inherent antagonism in Xinjiang's economy, which is negotiated by Uyghur and Han actors through the use of social capital to obtain employment. As rapid urbanization continues, market relations have the potential to further precipitate a sectoral division of labor to the extent that the labor market is skewed towards Han domination of high status and high wage positions, and conversely, Uyghur domination of low status and low wage positions in aggregate. Since occupational stratification has the potential to involve competition between the Han and Uyghurs, leading to the exclusion of one group from the rewards of economic development, this inevitably increases inter-ethnic group tensions. Put differently, the current labor market processes involving agency and structure are shaping a split and segmented labor market in Xinjiang, which, in the case of the Uyghurs, is a primary source of rising ethno-cultural consciousness. The consequences of rising ethno-cultural consciousness created by a split and segmented labor market can be understood in two ways. The first treats the Uyghur situation in Xinjiang as a struggle between the dominant state and the oppressed minority group. The second attributes group conflict to intense competition for resources, educational, and labor market opportunities. The corporatist Chinese state is often conceived as much stronger than society. Under this guise, ethnic minority issues are often treated as identity struggles, in which the state is usually conflated with the Han majority, whilst the minorities are aligned with civil society. The socioeconomic dimensions of inter-ethnic tensions and conflict, while recognized, are attributed to the colonizing intentions of inadequacies of the state. Everyday social processes such as ethnic divisions of labor and migration are given short strife. It is the contention of this article that Xinjiang's socioeconomic environment is an appropriate context to understand Uyghur Han conflict. Institutional changes have loosened peasants from their tie to the land of their birth and given rise of rural to urban migration of Uyghurs and the Han in disproportionate numbers. Amid such threatening developments, migrants rely upon their group or hometown connections to gain an entry into urban life. Social processes like employment discrimination and exploitation of laborers have great propensity within such a structure and often to the disadvantage of the Uyghur. They therefore sharpen divisions of labor and capital, perpetuating socio-cultural segregation in the urban space. As the article suggests, inter-ethnic group tensions and rising ethno-cultural consciousness in the case of Uyghurs ensues from the fact that the group's job options are limited to low-status and low-paying positions. Tensions between Uyghurs and Han Chinese are not simply a reaction against the state, who is often seen as an internal colonizer, but rather a set of social exchanges forged by Uyghurs and the Han, utilizing a subjective cost-benefit analysis. On the one hand, Uyghur resentment is directed at what is perceived to be a largely Han state that is protectionist towards the Han majority. 
Indeed, Han chondroids outnumber minority chondroids in Xinjiang. On the other hand, underlying tensions are exasperated by unregulated labor markets and the ensuing inter- and intra-group competition and living condi conditions under which Xinjiang's Uyghur poor subsist. The same segregated and segmented labor markets bind Uyghurs together and arguably forms part and parcel of increasing Uyghur ethnocultural consciousness. Ironically, economic incentives continue to be one of the main tools Chinese authorities use to manage the Uyghur population, a policy belied by their poor economic performance in the labor market compared to the Han. This was one of the key aspects stressed in the Central Work Forum on Xinjiang in 2014. The underlying idea behind authorities' strong belief in this strategy is that Uyghurs primarily want a comfortable economic material life for themselves and their offspring, a reasonable premise for any group in any society. However, complications arise in spite of improved labor market performances among Uyghurs following market reforms as this reality has not come to pass when using Han experiences as a gauge for success, which many Uyghurs use as a yardstick. Uyghurs continue to watch the better-paying jobs go to the Han Chinese while the more labor-intensive, poorly-paid positions are skewed towards Uyghurs. Until the inequalities between the Han and Uyghurs have been corrected in the labor market, Uyghur ethnocultural consciousness will be heightened, and Uyghur-Han-Chinese conflict will continue to play a significant role in the history of Xinjiang. In the short term, ethnic tensions will be suppressed, as has been the case in the past with the use of hard policies with a strong securitization bent. However, soft policies will eventually be re-employed. In the long term, neither the soft nor the hard policies currently practiced address the main reasons for ethnocultural tensions between Uyghurs and Hand. Left unattended, this will tragically lead to increasing acts of sporadic inter-ethnic conflict in the future.